0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Abel's Abstracts, the podcast where we abstract away the complexity of building products for the next generation of the internet and finance. My name is Abel Tedros and I'll be your host today as we dive into today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Ave, the money market protocol in Ethereum. So big, big shout out to Aave. Thank you so much for sponsoring today's show. All their links will be in the description. Today I have a very exciting episode I'd like to share with you all I managed to sit down with Sergey from the Chainlink project as part of the Blockdown conference and we spoke about a bunch of different things around blockchain, the future smart contracts, oracle security. I'm very excited for you guys to hear this so without further ado enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the conference. Thank you everyone for joining us on today's talk. We have a very, very special guest and I am very excited to have a chat with him. His name is Sergei and he is the co-founder of Chainlink. Sergey, welcome to the show and uh, yeah, I'll leave you to introduce yourself.
1: Great. Thank you, Abel. Thank you for uh, for having me. Uh, great, Great to chat with you here. Um, yeah, I mean, from from my side, I've been working on smart contracts for um, for over seven years now. In the the blockchain kind of space for approximately ten years, you know, started out with mining, then moved on to building some of the first smart contracts in the years 2013, 14, back when things were called app coins, and when um, when the first protocols came around to make smart contracts, and then evolving from there into what we call universally connected smart contracts, which are enabled by oracles. And um, so now we enable smart contracts running on various blockchains to become what we call universally connected smart contracts, which are the, the kind of the next evolution in, in what smart contracts are gonna be doing in ba- being able to provide value for.
0: Fantastic. That's a lovely intro and kind of a nice progression of uh, where you started off and how that's kind of led you to where you are right now. Um, so you mentioned smart contracts there. Uh, I think it would be interesting to have the discussion of uh, you know what smart contracts are and why they are important to society and why you know things like Ethereum and, and what you guys are doing at Chainlink is important. So maybe we start there and then we progressively get deeper. So uh, for the audience who doesn't know, uh, what are smart contracts and why are they important?
1: Right, so so smart contracts are, are the most advanced form of digital agreement out there, and they're the more advanced, most advanced in the sense that they provide you guarantees that something will happen. The other contracts out there that aren't smart contracts are agreements that are run by centralized entities that could decide to follow through on those agreements, or they could decide not to follow through on them. And that decision-making power is in the hands of a, a single entity. Usually, it's the platform that made the contract, like Airbnb can decide what to do with the contract. Uber can decide what to do with the contract. Various global trade can decide what to do with the contract. Insurance can decide to pay you out your insurance or not pay your insurance. And the global financial system can decide you know, whether it actually honors its commitments to its uh, asset holders and the larger global kind of financial ecosystem and so that's that's the world of brand based contracts that's kind of what i consider to be the world that's going to be slowly or quickly going away the world where the reason that you can rely on an agreement is because there's a logo and the logo gives you assurances that the contract will be solid that the contract will be followed through on that you will get paid out your insurance that your savings account will not become inaccessible to you that you know, various financial instruments will function the way they're supposed to function and not go below a certain threshold of value. And these are all assumptions that people tend to make when the market is, is good, but then there are these cyclical booms and busts where the market is, 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 is quite bad, going in a, in, in a really negative kind of vir- the opposite of a virtuous cycle, right? So it's kind of like a spiral of devaluation. Of and in those scenarios, people tend to really value the transparency and guarantees that come from smart contracts, right? So the, the benefit to society is actually twofold. The, the first benefit to society in the developed kind of markets is that you have financial contracts that work in very transparent and predictable and low systemic risk ways, So for example, the mortgage crisis that happened in 2008 that that Bitcoin was supposedly born out of, and that seeded a lot of the ideas that people care about in our entire industry, that was because the automated contracts of the time had no transparency as to the underlying value of the assets they were connected to. Whereas a smart contract would have illuminated for people what the underlying value was, and you wouldn't have had such a cyclical boom and bust. And so in the developed world, you have smart contracts being, being built into existing automated contract systems to make the entire global financial system both more efficient, more transparent, more equitable, and essentially smoothing out booms and busts in ways that, that really benefit everybody. In the emerging market, I think where smart contracts are extremely significant and something I'm actually, very, we're very proud to, to, to be somehow connected to is the fact that you can now offer agreements or the ability to have contracts that didn't exist in those geographies before. So for example, one of my favorite ones is crop insurance, because you're a farmer, something with global warming or just there's a drought season. And if you don't have insurance, you can't be a farmer anymore. You know, there's been droughts, global warming for whatever reason. And now you 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 don't have the capacity to continue farming you have to become a migrant. You have to migrate to a city. You know your whole life completely changes. And now we actually, on production, are powering a system called Arbol, where you have smart contracts for insurance in geographies where they traditionally would never have this type of insurance because the local legal system wouldn't have enabled it, because the local legal system didn't have the capacity to properly. Um, Assure both the policyholder and the insurance company that they were going to have a fair and equitable arrangement. But if you can automate an agreement using weather data and you can do that within a system like a blockchain, which gives you these tamper proof smart contracts, then you don't need a local legal system. You have a parallel technologically enforced system of contracts, which gives you the relevant guarantees that you need. In order to have that form of agreement,
0: that's that's a fantastic kind of lay of the land in terms of like one, what smart contracts are, and two, why they're important for society. And I like how you kind of segmented the impact this this could have on the on the on the uh, on the developed world and also uh, other other kind of uh, developing economies too. Um, one, one question I do have, based based on what you just said, there um, is you know. Like legal, I guess legalese or or the language used in contracts are um, quite widely written so that they can be widely interpreted. I wonder um, with smart contracts, are you able to fully codify uh, smart contracts? Is that like, how how do you foresee kind of um, the world of uh, regular contracts being fully ported over to this world of smart contracts?
1: So I, I think the way that it looks is that there are certain contracts that have data which you can prove things about contractual outcomes there, such as whether goods were delivered, whether something occurred um, as it was expected, whether a market price changed, any number of other kind of nuances, right? And those contracts, I think, will invariably make their way into an automated and eventually into a smart contract-based format. There are other subjective agreements where people are talking about, you know, how can we paint the house a certain color and did we paint the house the right color or the wrong color? And un- until you have a way for contracts to know that th- something happened, the, uh, this is actually the problem we work on, is, is, is how do you prove to a contract that something happened? And only once you prove to a contract that something happened, can you write an automated smart contract around it? Because it's it's all a completely data-driven system, right? So... I think that the positive things there are twofold. The first one is that there's more and more data appearing. And as more and more data appears, you're gonna have more and more capacity to automate various contracts. There's also a large amount of contracts that are already successfully automated by data. And then the second thing is systems like ours are continually improving to enable the proper verification that the data that you're getting is actually true and is actually in a certain state and therefore reliable enough to trigger a contractual outcome. And that's kind of the piece of the puzzle where Chainlink fits in is you can have smart contracts written, written in various languages and various formats, but they will all need to arrive at proof that something happened. And that needs to be, a provided, by, that needs to be provided by a system that can provide that proof at a certain level of quality and clarity.
0: Great. Uh, I, I really appreciate how you kind of uh, described uh, your answer, then how Chainlink fits into uh, the world of smart contracts and kind of automating that. So, uh, my next question is, um, what does the evolution of smart contracts look like? Right. So, uh, you did a really good out, uh, outline there, but I'm curious to see, like, how do you think this uh, uh, evolves, and how does Oracle kind of Oracle's kind of fit into that uh, into that uh, world?
1: Right. So, I, I think what we're seeing is a consistent stream of new use cases enabled by a consistent stream of new data, new categories of data and new categories of interactions with the real world. So what what we're seeing is that as we put price data on chain, we see the appearance of defi, right? It's it's not really that much of a coincidence that as you see high quality oracle mechanisms appear, after years and years of people speaking about defi, the the time frame in which high quality oracles appear is the time frame in which defi appears. And that's because defi is so directly rooted in needing price data to trigger its, its, its proper operation. Then you see us being able to provide more data, right? So more categories of data, such as commodities data, index data, um, you know, various crypto, more and more crypto price data. And that leads to more and more markets being generated in DeFi because those markets have to have that data in order to be written about those contractual topics, right? Then you see us um, expanding into things like weather data, and weather data gives birth to a lot of that crop insurance. And I'm very excited to see more and more crop insurance, more and more various real world applications of smart contracts that does two interesting things. It makes that application work, but then it actually brings a lot of new value and usage into smart contract platforms that can eventually be tokenized and used as collateral within DeFi, which is a whole other interesting, interesting aspect. But then you also see the provision of uh, verifiable randomness through something called Chainlink VRF. And then you also see us now providing something called proof of reserve. And, and for on-chain verifiable randomness, you see a number of games being able to launch or work more fairly towards their users. We've also recently started working more with um, ad platforms that have you know, click fraud and the ability to verify what users are doing through an Oracle network, Actually enables us to solve certain amounts of click fraud with the help of blockchains combined with oracles, and and then you have something called proof of reserve, where you where you prove data, uh, you prove using using data you prove the status of collateral, you prove the underlying status of collateral, whether it's solvent or or what state it's in. That's very relevant to the previous mortgage example I gave, right? Proof of reserve would have would have largely solved the 2008 financial crisis if it had been implemented properly for certain categories of underlying assets. And as we put new pieces of data on chain, people build around those new pieces of data and those new resources. And so I I think the way that smart contracts evolve is that there's a number of blockchain systems that are focused on scalability because the systems we have are kind of at the limit. And that's a very good thing because it, it means that there's so much usage that people actually want to use these systems that they're at the limit. And so now people are solving scalability, which is the sign of a growing industry and a growing use case. When scalability is solved or solved in the many different ways that it can be solved, I think you're going to see even more use cases appear that were previously squeezed out by lack of scalability. Those use cases, you know, the majority of them are going to need various data inputs. And so we are in tandem solving our scalability concerns and making the chain link system increasingly more scalable. So I I think what you'll see is more scalable smart contract platforms consuming more data. You'll see a variety of use cases across decentralized financial products, insurance, gaming, preventing various types of fraud like click fraud, and and basic added added value systems like a proof of uh, reserve. Um, And then I think what you'll see is you'll see uh, a separation between where people want to do their computations, So there's going to be a portion of their computation that they do want to do in a blockchain on a layer one. And there's going to be a portion that they want to do on layer twos and a portion they want to do in Oracle networks around the data. And so eventually you're going to arrive at design patterns where the most scalable privacy preserving and secure model is a model where has, where you have smart contracts functioning in two environments. You have them functioning within an on-chain layer one environment, and you have them functioning within an, Oracle network or some kind of system that does some kind of computation around the data, possibly together with a layer two that lends scalability to the layer one, right? So at at the end of the day, you arrive um, at a world where you have more scalable systems, you have more data being consumed, and you have a, a variety of different use cases that we consistently see as we make more data and more inputs around which people can build, they consistently do build. And, and the question for us now is just making the right prioritized list of what are the next set of inputs that we're going to provide into the ecosystem. And even more importantly, our community is now starting to provide those inputs on their own. And so as they provide various inputs, you can see a kind of organic, unpredictable growth in what smart contracts can be used for.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing to see kind of all of this uh, uh, crop up, right? And you 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 spoke about it there a little bit in in your answer, talking about DeFi. Um, and I I, I I must say, like there are just an Immense amount of DeFi projects using Chainlink, and it's it's incredible to see the adoption of uh, of this project, right? So I'm just curious, um, you know, why are so many of these companies, or or I should say, projects, uh, using uh, Chainlink? Like, what is the uh, why? Why are they relying on Chainlink for their data? Like, what is it that Chainlink provides that uh, they can't get anywhere else?
1: Right. So I I I think the nuance to understand here is that there's two versions of the Oracle problem. There's the easy version, they're solving the easy version and there's the hard version. And the easy version is let's just build the service and let's have that service transition data from the off-chain data world into the on-chain world for consumption by contracts. And that's kind of the world in which we built smart contracts for many years over the course of those several years. And we we basically came to the conclusion years ago that that model is, is not aligned with the reliability and tamper-proofness guarantees that smart contracts give. So smart contracts give a unique tamper-proofness and high reliability guarantee because they are operated on a large network of computers. And that's where the state of the contract lives and that's where the state transitions of the contract occur. And because they occur in these systems like Ethereum and others, on these thousands of notes, people consider them to be highly reliable, deterministic, tamper-proof, and so on, right? And that's their unique property. So if, if you suddenly connect that unique property to a system that's easy to manipulate, easy to, easy to break into, easy to basically gain, you break the fundamental value of a smart contract. So what, what, what people have done in the past, before you had decentralized oracles like Chainlink, Was they would basically say, hey, you know, I I wanna expand the capabilities of my smart contract to include external data, but I don't have a system that allows me to do that in a decentralized, tamper-proof, highly secure manner. And so I'm just gonna build a service, a single server, and I'm gonna have it give me data, and I'm gonna cross my fingers that nobody asks, and I'm gonna hope that it's okay. And you know, hopefully people won't notice. And and that did work for a certain period of time where the value in DeFi was smaller and the the attention paid to the end-to-end security of a smart contract was less. But now um, with over 10 billion in DeFi uh, and with us securing over 4 billion of it through this decentralized Oracle mechanism, what you see is that people become increasingly sensitive to security as the value that's getting secured grows. Right? So you, you start to see that you you basically have a need for the same type of decentralized computation guarantees that a smart contract gives you extended to the Oracle mechanism, and that and, and solving for that is solving for the hard version of the Oracle problem. I mean, I'll, I'll give you some basic examples. There's some people out there that they have an Oracle system. it can't access password-protected APIs. So the only data they could ever get would be free or trial data. And they expect people to trigger billions of dollars in value with free data or trial plan data, right? So that's, that's, that's a confusing dynamic. There's other dynamics where people rely on randomness schemes that you know have holes or have issues that can be gained. There's other dynamics where the decentralized relationship between the nodes doesn't exist and can't be proven. Civil resistance can't be proven. There's other dynamics where sometimes people generate some value somewhere and then they try to send it on chain through a single relayer. And they expect people not to notice that there's a single relayer that's responsible for sending the data onto a blockchain that was aggregated somewhere else, right? And so you, you, you basically arrive at a, at a state where a number of people try to make an oracle mechanism, but they're not able to make it in this decentralized manner or in this privacy or this in, in this security guarantee preserving manner and I, I think that's partly because of the, the people that we work with so if you look at the even the co-authors on our white paper uh, one of the co-authors is somebody called Ari Jules who was previously the chief scientist of RSA invented proof of retrievability and, and made a number of other advances in the space and so while the Oracle problem might seem simple solving the the hard version of it which is the version that actually guarantees security, is is actually a very challenging problem that we've been able to solve to a certain degree, and that we're continuing to solve more and more as we expand the security guarantees of Chainlink.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you outlined it pretty well there in terms of like trying to solve. It's such a, it's it's such a hard problem to solve this oracle problem, and I like how you kind of had the. Uh, the simple version and the hard version and i like how you guys are focusing on the hard version because ultimately that's what's going to enable this world of defi to really that's the version that's going to matter because even mm. if someone
1: can build an mvp with some version of an oracle nobody who actually gets a security audit or looks into the into in, into the guts of their end to end security is going to go towards that and the people that have historically gone towards that they've had security failures and hacks and issues and then, you know, we help them. They have no more issues and over, no more security concerns on, on the Oracle level. And so I, I think that even if people start out at some MVP level implementation, they they eventually realize that based on the value they secure, they need a system that gives them real security guarantees. And I, I think that now you see people that take this more and more seriously when even starting to think to, about making a DeFi product, just like you had people starting to take smart contract security seriously when and, and to do audits when you had a few smart contract security failures. And so I, I think that the, that's the reason that we secure the the vast majority of the value from an Oracle point of view. It's because we're able to pr- prove the security of our system and that however people build things as an MVP, that's eventually where they're gonna end up. And because we're on all these different chains, that's that's how I think that the space will
0: evolve. Yeah I really like this notion of end to end security and and how you describe the fact that you know you have to have a system that is robust end to end essentially um and I love how you also spoke about uh, smart contract security and how People started only caring about that once we started to see some of the the hacks come about right and now um you know people are starting to think about oracles um and having internet security now that we've seen a few oracle manipulations happen in the ecosystem right and i like i like how you kind of uh position that there um my next question is more around uh, Chainlink and how you guys are thinking about how to provide more uh, more data to this ecosystem and additional resources uh on top of what you guys are already doing how, how do you foresee uh that playing out in the future
1: yeah, so I, I think one of, one of the strong points of what, what Chainlink is able to do is the flexibility and the choice that it provides to both data providers and the smart contracts consuming the data, right? So right now, a certain portion of the data is provided through an Oracle network model where there's a number of Oracles that can basically pull data from data sources that run their own existing API infrastructure. And what this does is it enables the entire universe of APIs to be consumable and usable by smart contracts through an Oracle network without those API providers having to run any additional software. So the, the, the initial kind of quick win model where you're able to get a lot of data into the blockchain ecosystem and properly provide it to smart contracts is is where the the API providers don't need to make any changes to their infrastructure. And this is something that Chainlink excels in and therefore is able to pull data from all over the world really efficiently while providing a greater degree of security and assurance. And I think we're gonna see a continual increase in the amount of data we provide that way because it's so easy for data providers to get started and it's so easy for the existing data landscape to be made consumable by uh, smart contracts. The the second dynamic that we're also seeing is that a number of the data providers that are becoming successful selling their data via an API into the Chainlink network are now starting to run their own Chainlink nodes. So what you're actually seeing is you're seeing a number of both exchanges that want to sell their price data directly, data providers for crypto data, some weather providers, any number of other data providers that we work with. You're seeing more and more of them converting into somebody that's going to run their own chain link node. And that's going to give them the benefit of signing data themselves as a data provider, which gives us some added security to users. And it's going to allow them to basically market more effectively into the blockchain ecosystem as, hey, I'm a data provider running my official chain link, right? So now there's going to be, I think, more and more data providers running their own official chain links. That's something we've been working on. Uh, in the background with a large number of them and some of the better data providers out there in in the whole world. And I I think that we we, we actually already have a number of data providers that are feeding data that they sign by running their own Chainlink node into our reference contracts. So I, I think that Chainlink has this very flexible model where you can both include data providers that don't have any need or any desire or or any kind of initial will to change their infrastructure which is the vast majority of these data, data sources. And then you have the ability for data sources that do want to sell their data in a signed format to in less than a day get live doing that and selling their data to the many different chains that chainlink connects into, right? That's that's kind of the first dynamic I think that's going to be important around data. The the other dynamic from the other side of how the smart contracts are going to be consuming data and other resources is really against the prioritized list of smart contract use cases. So the, 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 first, the first on that list, the first category on that list is DeFi and these financial products and us providing greater and greater amounts of data at greater and greater scale with greater and greater security guarantees, uh, crypto economic guarantees from staking, various circuit breaker guarantees, any number of other security improvements and scalability improvements that allow us to meet the demands of DeFi users. That's the first category. And in that category, you're going to see a mix of, we pull data from sources and sources sign data to put it, depending on the source, depending on the requirements of the user. You, you also see the need for a system that is on many different chains, all of the chains where DeFi and all of these smart contract types will evolve, which is something that that we're well on the way to doing with over you know, 70 announced blockchain partners, a number of integrations in a, in in, in in later final stages, a number live, a number kind of ongoing. And then you also see a need for other resources like randomness, proof of reserve, and and other types of computations that are not really data sources. They are the Oracle network providing certain proof about randomness, about reserves. It's basically the Oracle network doing its own valuable, value-added computations. And these value-added computations, I think are right now in their simplest form of you know generating verifiable randomness, proof of reserve, you know basically proving the, the status of an asset somewhere else. And I, I think that as the use cases become more advanced in insurance, decentralized finance, gaming, you're going to see chainlink continually releasing new and better um, computations that can be done on the chainlink network. And that'll eventually evolve into something where the ecosystem can start to define its own computations more and more and more. And within a certain framework, generate those computations with the help of node operators and and various consultancies and various people that build computations in the format that people want to consume from an Oracle network. Right. Um, I also think you're going to see Chainlink feeding data into layer twos. And that's something that's 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 underway now. And as those become the places where people scale, there'll be a large amounts of data we feed in there. And so I, I think you're going to consistently see us feeding more and more data, both in a signed source format and in this easy to access format where just the data gets pulled. More different computations on both different chains and different layer twos. And then in the longer term, I think you can actually see web systems, and other systems that consider themselves to be doing highly secure computations, also relying on chain link validated data, because that validated data is useful to them as well. But we're starting on the blockchain and smart contract level, because the requirements of those contracts in that form of computation is is just at such a high standard. That once you meet the standard of smart contracts for validated data, you've met the highest standard. And therefore web systems and all the other systems out in the world that need validated data um, you've met their standard as well and so that all that needs to happen there is they need to wake up to the usefulness of validated uh, data and definitive truth which I, I think will happen at some point as users begin to question how those systems work
0: that's the dream that's the dream right like that was uh, that was really well put in terms of uh, you know how you go from where you are to ultimately the dream where this, this system is widely used uh, all over the web, right? Um, sticking kind of with our questions around like the forward-facing aspect of, of, uh, of this project, um, how do you see DeFi and like more advanced smart contracts being adopted? You know, we spoke a lot about different kind of um, aspects there in your answer, but I'd love for us to kind of go deeper into that. You know, how do you see DeFi and more advanced uh, smart contracts being adopted in the future?
1: I think it's actually a very, very hopeful picture because there's a very compelling slow case and there's a very compelling fast case. So the slow case hinges on the fact that our ecosystem has now reached a certain critical mass where there's enough private key holders with enough value, um, over 350 billion in value, with only 10 billion in DeFi, right? That even with only that 10 billion in DeFi, you already see people making successful teams, getting funding to to grow. And kind of building next generation smart contracts. So I, I think that space has now reached a certain size that you can actually have niche DeFi products that cater to the crypto community that become highly successful at, 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 at the level of, this, of success that other startups can only can, can can only hope to meet. right? So you can now be successful within the smart contract and crypto ecosystem by building something that isn't about generating a token but it's about generating fundamental kind of technological value through smart contracts and that's different from what you would see 3 4 years ago so it's 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 a definite definite improvement and in that slow case i think what you'll see is you'll see more of that 350 billion migrating into defi into the defi format and the values there are going from 10 billion to much larger values and that will float the boat uh, float, you know rising tide will float float all the boats related to to how the DeFi protocols that receive that value will gain a a certain percentage of that, right? There's already certain well-established lending protocols like Aave. There's already certain well-established derivatives, uh, protocols like synthetics and and other protocols for insurance and various others that take spins on on those variants and and, and do something useful as well, right? And so I, I think in the slow case, you see DeFi continuing to grow as more and more of the value flows from, Private keys that would usually hold crypto into holding crypto in the DeFi format because of the rates of return, you know, the interest rates, and whatever people want to do with these derivatives products and and, and other products, right? Uh, you know, to that point, for our proof of reserve system, you can actually see that there's over a billion dollars now in Bitcoin that has migrated from, not migrated, but 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 been replicated within the Ethereum ecosystem to be used within DeFi. And really, that's that's a very, very small percentage. That's not even 1% of, of all the Bitcoin that could be migrated into the format that can then allow DeFi to provide interest rates on that, which is just like a no-brainer, right? So I think that what, what you're going to see is you're going to see that slow case continue, and we will continue to enable that slow case through providing more and more data to these DeFi protocols, value-added security features like proof of reserve. To guarantee that the Bitcoin transitioned in Ethereum is actually there on the Bitcoin blockchain, proving that reserve, and, and any number of other services that we can provide to the growing DeFi ecosystem to make sure that it can quickly launch all the financial products and all the use cases that the crypto community wants to consume, right? Because the DeFi ecosystem can only launch the products that it can pro- have data provided to it about. And so it's very important for us to be able to do that. And I'm very happy that, that we're in a position to do that in a secure way and able to enable a lot of that kind of innovation from all these great DeFi teams. That's the slow case. And I think that's going to continue. And I think slowly, you're also going to see people from the standard world convert their holdings into crypto in order to be- gain the benefits of DeFi in the form of earning interest. Because if, if, I, if I can only get 0.1% from a standard bank account, but I can get 4% in interest if I have it in some crypto format. And all I have to do is turn my cash in my bank account into a stable coin or some Bitcoin or some kind of crypto format asset. And I suddenly am getting anywhere from two to 8% interest. I mean, that's a very compelling and very logical proposition. You know, interest and yield is what a lot of the financial system is fundamentally based on, right? So that's, that's kind of the slow case. And then the fast case, the FAST case is, is going back to our conversation about brand-based versus math-based agreements, right? So the global financial system, the way it works today is you have these brand-based guarantees that basically people say, hey, I have a logo. The logo has been around for 100 years. You can trust it. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Just give me your money or invest with me or you know, I'll give you an insurance policy. You'll pay me a premium. It'll be fine. My logo has been here for 100 years. And what consistently happens in these boom and bust cycles is during the bust side of that boom and bust cycle, a lot of things break. And there's a lot of solvency that gets called into question. And there's basically a lot of logos that are shown to be hollow, right? They're shown to be in a state where, oh, you know, the market went in a certain direction and we were over leveraged or there were any number of other issues that, you know, we we weren't required to make clear to the global financial community. But now that the, now that the market has, has gone through a bust cycle, it's been forced to be made clear because you know, we don't have the capacity to continue and we don't have the capacity to pay out our insurance policies. We don't have the capacity to honor our financial obligations to our counterparties. And, and this is really just called counterparty risk, right? So basically, when, when everything is going very well, counterparty risk is not a concern for the average consumer or for, for, any, for anybody in the financial world, really. Like it's a concern to a degree to, to optimize certain financial terms, but it's not a global macro kind of like key question when engaging in contractual and financial agreements. However, in the bust cycle and the you know, six to 12 month or six to 18 month period after a bust cycle occurs, people are hypersensitive to counterparty risk. So their sensitivity to counterparty risk goes through the roof. And you saw this after the 2008 financial crisis where the global financial system had an issue with keeping up with the explanation of what is the counterparty risk of all the participants that people are engaging with, even as the most astute institutional kind of pension fund level investors. Even these people could not arrive at clear answers about their counterparty risk relationships in the global financial system. But at that point, blockchains didn't exist, right? At that point, blockchains weren't an alternative to how the global financial system should work, and I think we are right now pretty much right about on schedule for a pretty big bust cycle, which is going to be quite frightening and something that I think is going to be very unfortunate. It's going to be a very frightening, kind of you know difficult set of circumstances that come out of that. And you know the one the one positive thing that might come out of it is that if it's serious enough, and if blockchains and their underlying technological foundations are firm enough and well made enough at this point, which I think they are, people will, in their state of hypersensitivity to counterparty risk insolvency, and, and transparency and tamper-proofness, come to realize, you know, on a global level, on a global macro entire financial industry level, that blockchains are the safety net against these extreme boom and bust cycles. And there, I think, I think there will be a very serious call for a reimagining of the global financial system against the proper management of counterparty risk. And there won't be a single technology solution that's anywhere close to blockchains. There's just, you know, nobody, anybody who I've described all this to in, in, in the highest levels to, to the medium levels, to the daily, you know, operational levels of global finance has been able to explain to me why there's anything close to block, a a Oracles and a smart contract's capacity to solve these problems. So I, I think that's the fast case, right? So the fast case will be very scary and it will will seriously influence a number of people's lives. But I think from the point of view of the blockchain industry, it'll make people, it'll make everybody as paranoid and hypersensitive to counterparty risk as blockchain people are. And, and I think that fast case could lead to this massive adoption. Um, And but but even if it doesn't, the slow case is still here. So I I really think that even though literally year after year, I have consistently been the person saying, This is the year blockchains will win, this is the year they will gain mainstream adoption. Every single year with me for like you know half a decade now has been, This is the year, right? And this is also the year. And if you talk to me next year tomorrow, the the next year will be the year. But I, I think I'm I am seeing a definite acceleration. On both the slow case, where the community can just become successful and provide real value to consumers, and in the fast case, where the global financial system sees the value of blockchains and smart contracts and oracles.
0: I love that uh, that that note there, where you kind of laid out the slow case, the fast case. Um, and this kind of move, and I I really hope this, this really becomes a case because it it allows for, you know, more resilient systems where we go from a trust-based system to a verified based system where everything is out there to be verified. Right. And, um, you know, again, like I said, it will be more resilient system. That was a, a wonderful way of describing it. And honestly, I could sit here for, for hours on end and listen to you explain all of these really amazing concepts, um, because you, you explain them really well. Um, And I I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I realized that, you know, um we, do have to, we are running up on time, uh, but I just want to say a big, big thank you to you uh, for spending the time here to describe all of the things that you guys are doing, uh, Chainlink, and also just get generally your macro thoughts on how you think uh, the world will change and how smart contracts will play and oracles will play a role in that. So um, yeah, I just want to say a big, big thank you to you. And, and before we wrap up, uh, any kind of final thoughts or anything you want to uh, shout out before we uh, wrap up today's conversation?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- thank you for including me in the conference. I, I appreciate you including me here. Um, I-, I-, I guess I really would like to say a big thank you to to our community and all the people building together uh, with us, as both users and people composing high quality sim- systems that rely on Chainlink, and the people working with us in our community to help build Chainlink and to help let people know that that it's a useful system that's gonna that's gonna get them to a more secure smart contract. So I, I think that. One of the things that I'm really grateful for is that there's this large ecosystem of people in the blockchain community like you, like the people at this conference, who genuinely believe and see a future in what this technology can do for society locally, society in emerging markets, society in developed markets, globalization and its acceleration of, of the benefits from that. And I think I'm just kind of very grateful to be working with so many smart people and uh, especially the people in our community, which is growing, growing kind of rapidly now, but I'm, I'm, very, I'm very grateful that there's so many smart people working with us on this. I think that's probably what I would say.
0: And that is a wonderful note to end this conversation. Sergey, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending your time. And I look forward to doing this again sometime soon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.